Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We're currently studying together in the book of James, Faith That Works. For more information, go to our website, EdenWorshipCenter.com. We're going to be continuing sort of towards the back end already of our, our study of James. James chapter 4, we're going to be starting in verse 4. While you're turning there, I just want to remind you that we live in a spiritually and a morally confused world. A world that seems to have no anchor to be able to hold itself to, to say this is right and this is wrong, this is good, this is bad, this, this is positive and this is evil. Have you noticed that even in the news? We don't seem to have words to be able to describe evil and say this is wrong. Last week in Pennsylvania, and I'm not exactly sure how do you say it, the Monison Middle School in Pennsylvania gave a uh, pop culture sort of highlight from what's going on in the media uh, crossword puzzle to middle school children based on the movie that's coming out, The Fifty Shades of Grey. And go ahead and throw that slide up. Uh, This is what it has to look like to show it to adults in church. And they gave this to middle school kids. Uh, I read some of these to my wife, and I didn't even get to the bad ones yet, and she was gasping. I can't believe that was in there. Uh, and let me just tell you, our world seems that we seem to have this knowledge that that's wrong. That it's wrong to give sexually, and this is explicit. I, I encourage you, don't look it up. That's why it's all blacked out. I'm just telling you, it's explicit. It's about as explicit as you're going to get. And there's something that tells us that's wrong to give to middle schoolers. But if you ask us why, we're going to have a hard time coming up with why that is. Well, the truth is that God's word sets a very clear compass for us. And yet the entire history of humanity is that we try and subvert that. We try and go our own way. So let's look at James chapter 4 and verse 4. And as we read this, I I want you to think about, and you can get rid of that junky thing. Uh, I want you to think about the fact that this is creeping into the church. It's been creeping into the church slowly and steadily for a long time. And right now it is sprinting into the church. A complete undoing of God's word, a complete uh, undermining of trust in the sovereignty of God, uh, in the, the authority of God's word over our lives. It is under attack. And so would you stand to your feet as we honor the word of God as we read it together. And I want you to hear spoken into 2015, these words from a couple thousand years ago that seems to speak to exactly where we are. James chapter four, verse four says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that is for no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray. God, those words make up the prayer of our heart this morning that we would be humbled before you. Lord, not because we're seeking to be exalted to some place of honor or reputation, but because we know when you say that, you are talking about causing dead things to come to life. You're causing things that have been separated and cast down from you, unworthy people like us, to be exalted because of the merits of Christ. And so, Lord, this morning we say, let that be our heart. God, please humble us. Please don't let us keep going in our arrogance and our ignorance. Same prayer that we prayed for the kids. God, please show us Jesus. Please let us see our sin in contrast with the holiness of God and how desperately we need a Savior. We don't want to be that adulterous people. We want to be your people. 
We want to be your sons and daughters that you have written into your family. So come by the power of your word now. Cause that to happen in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to talk this morning about this concept that he uses here, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. I've got a little definition up on the screen for you there. Friendship with the world is choosing voices that agree with and validate our preference for sin. Choosing voices that validate my preference for sin. It means that I know perfectly well what the Word of God says. I know what uh, somebody from church would say, and yet, how many conversations do we have where we're looking for another voice? I want to find another voice who will validate and affirm whatever sin that is my pet sin. And say, it's okay. It doesn't matter. James actually tells us that that kind of a heart attitude, it's not just unchristian. It's not just not the way we should go. He actually uses a word that we don't use a whole lot. He says it is enmity with God. That word just means hostility. It's an act of war towards God when we know what his word calls us to do and we intentionally go looking for voices that tell it's it's all right to do the opposite. God says it's hostility towards him. We don't usually think of it like that. We just think of it as, it's a mistake that I made in the past because we don't like to talk about sin nowadays. Here's the reason it's a big deal. It is a clear rejection of His Word and His direction for our lives. Now I want you to just put this in your own context this morning. Whatever has gone on in your life, And I want you to think about how we, this is sort of the premise of where we're going this morning, how often we have fallen into ruts. We've fallen into old habits and we've excused it with things like, well, it's just how I am or it's just how I was brought up or I can't seem to get past this thing. And we start looking for voices that tell us it's okay. It's all right to stay there. It's no big deal. You don't actually have to overcome it. And the reality is, we know what God is asking of us, and we are making a rather clear choice to reject it. Folks, that puts us on hostile and dangerous ground with God. In fact, he he says, by doing this, uh, if you look down at the passage here, he says, you actually make yourself an enemy with God. That God is not coming to you as as some uh, overbearing judge who's just constantly waiting to pounce on every mistake that you make. He's saying that we actually choose this, we want this, and then we intentionally make ourselves an enemy of God. I don't think ISIS is accidentally making themselves an enemy of the United States and much of the world. It's intentional. They believe themselves to be part of the end-time great war that will come at the end, and they think they're going to be on the winning side, and they're trying to provoke a war. It's the same type of imagery that he says that our rejection of God and our sin actually does towards God, that we are provoking God's hostility. We are provoking the wrath of God. So I want to I think about this just for a little bit. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 says this, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. What are the things that we're fighting with God over? What are the things in your life that you have, have wrestled with God? Or maybe, you've, maybe you haven't thought about it as wrestling with God. You've just wrestled with the, the church. Or that one overbearing Christian who every time you see them seems to poke your sin. Right? You know that guy? Did, did you guys see the awesome picture that Jen put on Facebook of the dog with his head through the, uh, the little doggy door going, excuse me, do you have a minute to talk about Jesus Christ? She's like, I love that this is my husband and it's becoming my whole family. Uh, we have those people in our life. Every time you get around them, then they remind you that you're not quite living up to the glory of God. That you're choosing sin. And so it, it kind of gets uncomfortable after a while, doesn't it? We just like try and avoid them. Now, I'm not saying go around poking people's sin, all right? Hear me, hear me here. Uh, we need to be sharing God's love. We need to be calling people to repentance. But at the same time, when we're on the other end of that, we don't like it very much. Because we like our sin. We like to stay there. Except John says that those things are passing away. All those things that we're willing to fight God and the church and, and even people who love us and reach out to us, John says they're all passing away. Every pet sin... Every pet desire is going to burn up in the end. 
and yet those are the things that we're chasing. We prefer the temporary pleasures of this world over the permanent treasure of God. Church, you need to hear that really clearly because that's, that's exactly what James is saying. We prefer the temporary pleasures of this earth over God. Earlier in the chapter, he talked about uh, what is it that causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Isn't it your own passions? The, the word passions that he used there in verse 1 and 2, it's actually the same word that we get the word hedonism from. A just self-serving love of my own pleasure. Isn't it your self-serving love of your own pleasure that causes fights and quarrels among you? And then he, it's as if he points that out and then he turns and he's like, don't you realize, this is incredibly strong language. Just sort of let it offend you this morning. He says, this is adultery with God. This is cheating on your Savior. Now we, I'm telling you, we, we get so church numb to some of the things that the Word of God says, that they, they just sort of fly right past us. Here's what I can promise you. I can promise you that if you had an open, adulterous affair on your wife, you were openly cheating with another woman, you refused to repent, and then you just marched in, sat down for Sunday dinner at home, and said, what's for, what's for lunch, baby? We'd have a problem. Are you with me? I would. It would be my death. That's what the problem would be. The end of Matt. That, that, would, that would be the, be the end of that. And yet, he says, this is exactly what we do to God. And then we, we just sort of casually come back into God's presence as if nothing ever happened. God, I intentionally chose against you. It's no big deal. He says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. It equals adultery. So, I realize we're, we're off to a really positive start here. And you guys are like, man... I wish we'd have had more snow this week. Uh, stick with me. I, I think this is actually an incredibly encouraging thing. But you don't get to the encouraging until you've dealt with where you are. It doesn't work like that. Uh, verse 5 says, The reason that God cares so much is because He has made His Spirit dwell inside of us. That when you became a Christian, God put His Holy Spirit inside of you. And so He yearns for you. He's jealous for you. And he will oppose your pride. Now, folks, when we, when we think about the Christian life and we think about uh, God opposing us, I think that should be a very frightening thing. Now, as good parents, we do this with our children. When we recognize like pride and insolence and rebellion rising up in the heart of our children, what do we do? We oppose it, don't we? Because we want to we teach them how to live good lives so they'll be able to get along with people in this world. And yet when God does it to us, we say, oh, I think God is mean. God says, I want to teach you how to live like sons and daughters of the king in this world. So he will oppose your pride. He will actively... Folks, this, I just thought about this this week and I'm like, this is the scariest thing I can imagine. God will actively work against you. I don't care whatever the Christian bestseller book says of you do these seven things and God will have to bless you. If you are walking in pride and resisting God this morning, and it, let's, let's not take it outside of these walls. We're talking about us. We're talking about me. If I live my life like that, God will actively oppose you. God will actively work to crumble everything around you until all you have left is him. And that's his grace because he's a good father. This is why when we choose the world over God, it's so serious. In effect, we are rejecting him as Lord. That, that word Lord, we, it gets thrown around a lot. It's become a church word. It, it's the word for master, for the sovereign, the one who is able to call the shots, says do this, do that. When we reject him, we actually are rejecting his lordship in our life. Uh, that's dangerous because Romans 10, keep your finger here. Let's flip to this. Flip back towards the front a little bit. Romans chapter 10. If you got one of those uh, Revive Indiana bracelets, this is one of the verses I think that's on there. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says this. Remember, when we do this, when we turn against God, we are actively rejecting his lordship in our life. Saying, Jesus, I want you to be Lord and save me, but I don't want you to be Lord of this area in my life because I don't want you to tell me what to do. Think about in the context of this verse here. Romans 10 
Verse 9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We're actually talking about a salvation issue. Now, I don't care how you stack it up. Uh, we could have a, a debate on, on timing of salvation and, and which way it would go, and Jason would love to get into that. Uh, he had some great jabs when we were meeting with some of the local pastors. It was lots of fun. Uh, here's what I'm going to tell you. If you're not living your life in a way that makes Jesus the Lord of your life, maybe you never have. Maybe, maybe you like the idea of not going to hell, and yet you have chosen to say, God, I want to go to heaven, but stay the hell out of my life. That's serious stuff, church. Because Romans 10 says that it's that belief in his lordship, it's the confession that actually brings us to salvation. We might just be rejecting our own salvation. Uh, He starts off talking about adultery, and I I was looking for illustrations to sort of bring this up, and and the, the moral disaster that follows with adultery. You guys remember Jim Baker? end of the 80s, early 90s, uh, head of this giant Christian empire. And we're not going to get into the uh, validity of what he had going, but let's just say this. Uh, he had his hands on the steering wheel of an organization that had people from all around the world sending him boatloads of cash. Are you with me? He traded that for a moment with a young lady named Jessica Hahn. This is from an article written in 1990 called Moral Catastrophe. Uh, and here's, here's the quote. Former PTL leader Jim Baker is currently in jail making 11 cents per hour cleaning toilets. His empire crumbled because of an affair with Jessica Hahn. He literally traded the wealth of all the world to make 11 cents an hour cleaning toilets. My kids work for us cleaning toilets. They would not do it for 11 cents an hour. They would reject our fatherhood and motherhood and move into our doghouse, right? Because, like, no. And yet that's what we do. We, we take the epitome of everything that could be handed to us and we say, I will trade that for one moment of sin. Remember that John said is passing away with the rest of the world. One fleeting moment of pleasure that cannot live up to the promises that it makes you. That this will achieve happiness and success and fulfillment for you, except it leaves you empty and broken and alone. And God's call is repent. Come back. Come back. Humble yourself. One of the the dangers, we're going to hit on this a couple times here. Uh, Baker did an interview with Nightline, and here's what he said. I think the devil was mad that something so beautiful was being built. I believe the devil said, I have to smash Jim and Tammy Baker. Help me out, church. Who did he just blame for his sin? The devil. Keep that in mind. We're, we're gonna, we'll come back to that in a little bit. Verse 6. Look back at James chapter 4. Verse 6 says, Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves in your thoughts. Humble yourselves in your deeds because he's jealous for you. Because he yearns for you. Because he stands waiting to give you more grace, greater grace, but there's an if attached to that, if you will humble yourself. Church, if you refuse to humble yourself, those are not offers on the table for you. And you can live an entire life in rebellion to God and not receive that grace. If not, God will oppose you. Uh, Verse 7 says an interesting thing that I think we focus on a lot. I want to just touch on it a little bit. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. A couple thoughts attached to this. Number one, uh, the fact that he mentions the fact that the devil is a problem for Christians means the devil's real. I know there's, there's some people out there who say, oh, I believe in angels. I think they're like fat little babies wearing diapers, you know, sitting on clouds, shooting arrows, playing harps. Uh, I don't believe in demons. I don't believe in Satan. Uh, I, that's great as long as you do also don't believe the Bible because the Bible seems to believe in them. Are you with me? And James says that the enemy of our soul is actively at work in this world in such a way that we have to resist him. Now, when he tells Christians, oh, I gave you the answer. I was going to say, when James tells the people he's writing to, 
To resist the devil, who's he talking to? It's Christians. He's not talking to non-Christians. He's not talking to the world saying, resist the devil, resist the devil. He's actually talking to you and he's talking to me. And here's what we do with that. We make weird, elaborate demonology understanding of the devil and demons and how it works and how you cast them out and how this one has to go and what right words you have to say. And depending on what church you are, you have a whole book on uh, how to cast them out and all these different prayers that you can pray. And then you get Christians who wouldn't go to those churches, but they just all the time are worried about everything that's happening. I think it's a demon. Everything that comes, every time that their husband gets mad at them, they try and cast the demon of anger out of them. Everything's a demon. Now, James, yeah, I see some nodding over there. Come out, Joe. Uh, James is clear. We're talking about a real thing, okay? So don't, don't hear me minimizing and, and say that the enemy's not real, the threat isn't real. It is very real. I'm just saying I think we have an unhealthy preoccupation with it. I think we get focused on all the wrong things, and then we miss all of the good things. Flip Wilson, a comedian of a generation past, used to have that famous quote, the devil made me do it. Not my fault. devil made me do it. I think too often we approach the demonic, we approach the devil, the enemy, with an unhealthy obsession and we, we approach it in, with undue unbalance. Uh, look at John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. I've got it up on the screen for you. It says, You are from God, little children. You have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We believe that, and we quote that. In fact, it's the people uh, who really... I mean, can we just be honest for a second? We all have things in church that we like, Right? Things that sort of, that's sort of our thing. It defines us. It captures our attention. Uh, the people who really like casting out demons. This is one of their favorite verses. Now, I'm, I'm all for casting out demons. Please don't, don't hear me wrong here. Uh, I just think that we, we pay way too much attention to the enemy. Because we quote something like, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And then we act like that's not true. Then we act like, actually, equal to the one that is in me is the one that's in the world. But I think if I, if I pray hard enough and right enough, Jesus just might tip the scale and win. But it's still pretty iffy. You know where we got that? We actually got that uh, from movies and old Catholic doctrine about how uh, demonology works. Let, let's look back at James chapter 4 here. Let, let's look at uh, the prescription that James gives us. Okay, James chapter 4, verse 7 says this. Now, it, uh, before we read this, let, let me tell you what I would like to see here. Okay? Uh, if, like there's a little footnote here, if in fact you see a demon in Joseph Drake, uh, number one, step one, grab said Drake and take him to the office. Number two, grab all the elders. Number three, grab two and a half gallons of oil to dump on his head. Uh, number four, pray these 18 prayers in Latin as fast as you can repeatedly. Uh, have a bright light shining in his face. Uh, keep saying the blood of Jesus. Tell the demon, you know, it, we need all of these like schemes and plans and give me a, give me a layout. Look at, look at what he actually gives us. Verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That stinks. That's way too simple. We want, we want some big plan because we want some big fight. I know the guys love getting together and watching fight night, and, and two guys who are... It's not even that fun if one guy just gets beat up right from the beginning. Like one punch, done, not even awesome. I want like three rounds of... like. Okay, maybe if it's a good enough punch. Stuart's like, yeah, maybe. Uh, you know, you want three rounds of toe-to-toe and then this flourish at the end where the one guy's like, blah, right, knocked out. That's, we want this giant battle. And here's what God gives us, that God is sovereign over all the world and all the creation and all of our lives and every demon in hell and Satan himself. And we submit ourselves to God and the devil will flee from us. You know why the devil flees? Not because we know the right words, because God lives inside of me. If, if the Holy Spirit, who is God, dwells inside of me, 
And he who is in me is greater than he that's in the world. There's literally no devil from hell that can possess you because God is too big to let him in. Yet we run around in fear like, oh no, I hope I didn't catch a demon. Now let me give you the other side of this. I think the enemy will harass your weak spot. Whatever your weakness is, uh, the enemy, not the devil, he's not omnipresent. He's not like God everywhere at one time. He's one dude who's got a lot of bad dudes who work for him. I think they will harass your weakness. If it's pornography, they're going to pound the crap out of you. You won't be looking for it. It will come looking for you. If it's anger, you won't come looking for it. It will come looking for you. Anybody else found this to be true? When that happens, we can either say, I'm a victim. I can't escape this. I, this is who I am. Or we can say, God, I'm go- I know what's happening. I know this is my weakness. And I know that the enemy would love to see me crash. But I submit myself to you and to your word, knowing the devil has to flee. Because the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, who's just as much God as Jesus and just as much God as the Father, lives in me. Church, that turns the whole battle around. It's not a fight anymore. It's a victory. We submit ourselves to God. It says we draw near to God, and when we do that, that God actually begins to draw near to us. I, I told you, we talked about it a little bit earlier, I love what God is doing in bringing churches together around the gospel. This whole Revive Indiana thing, bringing people together. Hey, let me just, can I throw out a little parenthesis with that as well? You've got to be careful you got to be discerning. And I, I actually kind of miss the days of our youth when Daniel and I were going to Bible college. And there was this, this big movement of God that was going on. And we just jumped in with both feet. I'm not worried about it anymore. And I, I have found that as I go to these things, uh, as I'm actively engaging, I'm also actively watching and just being careful. It, God brought it home to me so much as I was sitting in my house uh, snowed in last Sunday and thinking, I miss getting together with these people where we still are, are listening carefully to what's being said about God and his word, but I don't come with any worry at all. I love meeting with you guys. I love worshiping with you guys. I love that some of us are occasionally crazy, right? And we love each other anyways. That's awesome. Uh, when we get connected with other churches, uh, God begins commanding unity, commanding blessing on top of that. And yet we still have to kind of keep our guard up. One of the things that I heard somebody say uh, as a part of that had to do with, we we were talking about this whole thing of uh, drawing near to God and he will draw near to you. And they made the comment that uh, because you have chosen to sort of seek after God, now God is seeking after you. I think it's the other way around. Like God was actively seeking you before you ever knew to go looking. But now that you're seeking, game on. Like now he's coming full force. I think there's going to come a day where we get a different perspective. We actually get to see our life from God's perspective. And we go, oh, oh, you were there the whole time. There wasn't a second where you weren't pursuing me. Even though I was running away from you. Here's what uh, Matthew chapter 17 Jesus is talking to his disciples about the devil. He's talking about the powers of the demonic. And if you have an ESV Bible, in fact, let's just flip there. We ain't going nowhere, right? Uh, Matthew 17. Let's just make a little textual note here. Jesus and his disciples are having a discussion about a demon that they tried to cast out and it didn't work. And so they're kind of frustrated. First, they were surprised that casting out demons actually worked for them because the Jewish model was actually the same thing we were talking about a little bit ago. It was all about form and ritual and and saying these specific prayers, and it didn't work very well. And now all of a sudden, Jesus says, all authority is mine, and his disciples seem to have amazing success. Well, they come to him and they say, Jesus, it didn't work. And if you look, Matthew 17... uh, I know we don't have all of this on the screen. Verse 19 says, The disciples came to Jesus privately, right? We're not going to do this in public because it didn't work out too well. We're a little embarrassed. 
They said, why couldn't we cast it out? Verse 20, he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Uh, If you have an ESV, look at your Bible. See, it goes straight on to verse 22. Verse 21 is missing. Uh, That's sort of a, a textual note that in some of the earliest manuscripts, verse 21 wasn't actually in there. So, because they want to be careful to only give you the word of God. They, they put that down in the footnote. But many of you are familiar with verse 21, where Jesus says, but this kind never comes out except for prayer and fasting. So just a, a textual note that uh, even in when we have tons and tons of manuscripts, we want to be careful to only give you what we know for sure is 100% God's word. Uh, but it's also a great reminder to us that... There are things that we try in our own power and it just doesn't work. Now, think with me just for a second. Because remember, we're talking about undue focus on the demonic. If you are praying and fasting, who are we praying and fasting towards? God, right? That we're submitting ourselves to God. In, In fasting, we're humbling ourselves before God. And yet, how many times, and I'm telling you, growing up in a charismatic church and believing that God has the power to save and heal and deliver today, it can be easy for us to fall into routines just because we heard it someplace else. And all of our focus is on this demon. Folks, I'm telling you, all of our focus should be on God. That God is the one who wins the victory. Luke 11 verse 20 says this. Jesus says, but if the, if, but it is, by the finger of God that I cast out demons and the kingdom of God has come near to you. This is not a fist fight. He didn't throw a wicked elbow at the end. He says, by the finger of God, the mightiest host of hell are defeated. Matthew 8, verse 8, the centurion says to Jesus, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. That Jesus has the power of life. Jesus speaks life over us. Uh, a couple hundred years ago, actually about five, a guy named Martin Luther wrote a song that most of us are familiar with the title of, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I was actually kind of put off by this hymn for a long time. I know it sounds weird to say that. <laughs> Jason's shaking his head in consternation. Because the whole thing's just focused on the devil. Like a verse after verse after verse, it keeps talking about the devil. And I knew that Luther had this sort of weird preoccupation with the devil and uh, probably makes sense when you have people trying to kill you all the time. But uh, as I have spent a little more time looking into this hymn and growing into deeper appreciation, I have found that it is basically setting up two realities, that the power of Satan is greater than any human can imagine and the power of God is so infinitely greater that the power of Satan is literally nothing. Listen, I think this is the third verse. It says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. We know his doom is sure. And here's the best part. One little word will fell him. One little word. By the way, we don't speak that word. This isn't the word that we speak that casts out the devil. This is the one little word when Jesus goes, done, and it's over. Satan is cast into the lake of fire, and we are set free from sin. We are set free from desires for sin. And for eternity, Jesus is the victor. One little word. It's not a Superman punch. One little word from the mouth of God. Church, if I can bring it together with this, our problem is not the devil. Our problem is we love sin. We love it. And then we blame the devil for the fact that we love it. Again, from 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the pride of life... It is not from the Father, but from the world. I have a great story here that I'm not going to tell you the whole thing of, other than to say there was another preacher who got himself into sexual sin. And he was part of the Assembly of God Church. And they asked him, as part of his repentance, would you take one year off of ministry? 
We want you to take one year, step out of it, and not serve in ministry. And within just a few months, he kind of rejected that and was right back on TV, right back uh, leading his church. And when the Assemblies of God church went to him and said, why have you done this? His answer was that another TV preacher had called him over the telephone and had cast out all of the demons that were making him sin. So now he was clean and good to go. So he should be back in order because it wasn't me who was sinning. It was the demons who were making me sin. Folks, the devil is not our problem. It's the fact that we deeply love our sin. It's actually a heresy to say that we are not responsible for our sin. The devil is. We're blaming the wrong thing. Calvin said of this, they have made the devil almost an equal with God. The problem of sin is replaced with the problem of Satan. We're not fighting our sin anymore. We're just fighting Satan. So we rebuke him all the time. We, we pray and we stand against him all the time. Folks, that's okay. That's good. I'm saying how much better if we kill our sin and we submit ourselves to God all the time. Draw near. Draw near. Let's see how I can wrap this up here. Uh, look at verse 8. Back in James 4, verse 8. We're almost done says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Uh, we kind of like that part. The next part gets a little, a little iffy. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That there actually is an action that God requires of us. Church, can I just tell you, we have asked too little of you for too long. This, is, this has been the, the plight of most of the American church. That our, our big goal is... Uh, we want you to just come and have a good time in church. And here's, here's what James says. As a result of us seeing the gospel, we should start cleansing our hands. We can't make ourselves right before God, but we can start getting rid of that, that word cleansing hands. It, the, the Greek there actually has to do with there's an intermingling filth. There's contamination that mingles in with the holiness that we have. And he says, get rid of it. Happens in our minds. Cleanse your minds, you double-minded. The Greek word there, it's actually two words stuck together, and it means two souls. Stop being this two-souled person, this divided-in-half person who in one breath loves the world and in the other breath loves God. The word actually means split in half, that, that our soul has been severed and split in half. And he says, stop vacillating and land. Land on the gospel begins with our recognizing our desperate position before God. And when we, when we see that, now I don't think we start, we don't stay here, but that means what he says, be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That is the opposite of how to build a megachurch. Can I just tell you that? Like you preach this sermon and people are like, well, I think I'm going someplace else. And yet we're called to, in recognition of our sin, weep and mourn and be broken, humble before God. One of my favorite pastors, John Piper, recently preached a sermon. And he, he was basically hitting on the point of how much fun we talk about in church. And how much fun we make our church. Here's a couple quotes from him. He says, having fun with each other. Here's the point of why we get together. Having fun with each other so that the world can come watch us have fun so they will want to have fun too. Isn't that how we've set up church in like 2015? We're going to make it as fun and attractive as possible so that all the people in the world will see it and they'll say, oh man, I want to have fun too. And so they'll come to church and they'll want to have fun, except what's missing in that, I'm I'm all for having a good time. What's missing in that is the gospel. Like, if if it's all about fun, where do we sneak in that nasty business that our sin has been adultery towards God? And you need to repent or God stands opposed to you. How do we get that in? And the answer is that a lot of seeker-friendly churches have said, let's abandon that altogether. We won't talk about that. We'll never use the word sin. We're never going to talk about the blood of the cross. We walk away from it. Listen to this. This is, this is John Piper. He says, I think the prov- that pervading the American church is such a chipper, light, flippant, joking, entertainment-oriented event on Sunday morning that nobody would ever dream anybody here might be going to hell, even the deacons, because they are in love with their sin and not putting it to death. And the pastor would never dream of telling them that because it wouldn't sound chipper 
or fun? Except here's what Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This one I have for you. 1 Corinthians 1.17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That, by the way, is why we showed the baptismal video this morning. I love it when God takes awesome, godly young men like Kyle and throws them into community and stirs up this passion for God and stirs up this passion for revival. But it's when all of that is said and done and over with, you know what? We're the body of Christ who wants to stand with these young people and say, we remember when you said, I'm dead to sin, alive to Christ. I remember that. I'm with you till the end. That's a church thing. That's a body thing that we gather together. And it's not about our words. It's not about our eloquence. It's not about uh, how wonderfully flowing our service goes together. We try, I mean, we try not to distract you by doing stupid stuff. Knocking things over, playing stuff out of tune, having microphones that don't work. And every once in a while, God reminds us it is not about that stuff. Because if it is, you can, you can slip in and nobody knows you. And you get caught up in the flow of the service and nobody calls you to repentance. And you can slip right out the back door and think, man, that's good. I got it together. I'm good with Jesus because I went to church this morning. And we forget that the church is about the gospel. The declaration of the gospel. So verse 10 says, humble yourself before the Lord. Stop living in your pride and your arrogance. Submit your will to his. Surrender your life for his and conform even your very thoughts to his. It means some of us need to change the way we think on a daily basis. Some of us need to change our actions on a daily basis. Does that make us more of a Christian? No. Does it make you closer to God and closer to heaven? No. Jesus did that. Jesus already said that part's finished. It means we start living like we're Christians. We start living like God has redeemed us. Worship team, if you want to come on up. I still got an hour left, but that makes the people feel like we're almost done. (laughs) If we humble ourselves before God, he says that God will exalt you. I, I don't think that's about lifting you up to some position. I actually think... What he's talking about, the fact that God takes dead sinners with hearts of stone. And he does the most amazing heart transplant where he takes out that heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh and he causes dead things to come to life. First Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Folks, that's where all of us started. Dead, not sick, not a little messed up, not misunderstood, not I was born this way and I'm working through it, that we were all, look at the person next to you and say, this includes me. All right, because sometimes we have this feeling like, well, you know, he's talking about so-and-so. This is everybody, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and he made us alive together with Christ, for by hard work you have been saved. Is that what it says? For by faithful church attendance, you've been saved. For by not saying four-letter words, you've been saved. Stick whatever your thing is that you've tried to save yourself. It's not there. It actually says it's God's grace. That's it. It's a gift. And he's raised you up and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You know what that should bring us to? How could I ever, how could I ever stand in judgment over somebody else who is still caught in their sin because I was right there with them under the wrath of God? Before God reached down and took my hand and said, come on. Now here's what the world does with that. It says, so let's never ever talk about any of those things because if you do, it's judgmental. I say that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. If your kids were playing in the highway and you thought there was a chance, in fact, you were, you were positive that if they stayed there, they would get hit by a car, and you said, I don't want to hurt their little feelings by telling them to get out of the street. You are not loving by letting them die in their sin. Are you with me? 
And yet we're not loving when we go to them with condescension and we come and hammer down on them. It's actually when we see ourselves in light of the gospel, we say, I was right there. And I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I don't know why he did it, but God brought me out of it. Looking at Amy sitting there in the back row, thinking about, like just a second ago, I had this flash of a memory of an incident that happened in high school. And I was instantly just sort of convicted like, she knows. Some of you know, like you were there, you saw this stuff. I'm telling you, I have no right to say I can earn anything with God. It's only God's grace. I do not deserve this. You don't deserve this. That's what's so amazing about the gift of salvation. If that's true, sharing the gospel should be the natural byproduct of our entire Christian life. That we receive it. Here's step one. We receive it. We recognize. We, we stop long enough. And we humble ourselves enough to say, God, I see the totality of my sin and my need for a Savior. And then we surrender to that. Folks, if you haven't done that, this is the day for that. This is the day where maybe as we've been talking, you've had things that have flashed in your mind that you go, this is the thing that I wrestle with. And if anybody knew about it, they would reject me. And so I've kept my distance from the church and people and God. And God says, this is the day to lay it all down. This is the day to find out what grace is all about. The power of the cross. But the second thing after that happens should be that those who God has set free, just like so many of these young people have been doing with their friends at school, it changes what we talk about. It changes the things that we love. It changes the things we pursue in relationships where Christ becomes all in all. It's not our arrogance. Oh, look at me, I'm so spiritual. It actually breeds humility. That if God could save somebody like me, I'm sure he can save somebody like you. Why don't you stand up on your feet with me? And here's what I want to just ask us in this moment. If you're here this morning and and you look at your life and you say, I am 100% confident in my place in Christ. I know in whom I have believed. I want to say, what's the one obstacle you're still struggling with? Because God leaves us hurdles that remind us again and again and again, I need a Savior. What's that thing for you? We're not talking about being shaken in your salvation. We're talking about what's that thing that actually causes you deep sorrow? And how can we put to death the deeds of the flesh? Like John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's, a, there's another question this morning, and that is, what if we haven't yet believed? What if we've believed in a, like a headway where we understand it and we think it's true and, yeah, I believe the Bible, I believe in Jesus. And if somebody asked you, you'd say, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus. And yet, let's just be honest, okay? If we have to define that as far as lordship in our life, I don't care what you say you believe, your life proves it's not true. And I want to I say to you this morning, you stand on very shaky ground. Because there's a chance that you be one of those who James was talking to that says, you adulterous generation. Don't you know that your love of sin, your passion for this thing that gives you fulfillment, that you've kept tucked and hid and nobody knows about, is actually hostility, making you an enemy of God. So these aren't my words. These are James' words saying we stand on shaky ground. And here, here's the answer. It's so simple. It's not that we change ourselves. It's not that we make a decision to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's actually that we throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus. Say, you are literally the only thing that I have to trust in. I can't trust in me. And here's what I want to ask you to do. Uh, If either one of those is you, I want you to respond to God. If if you have something that, and we're, we're going to sing this song 
Hopefully it's familiar to you, just reminding us of our need for God. But if you're, if you're struggling with something, let's just do it different. If that's you, I want you to put your hand up. I, I was going to do it so that it, it's sort of anonymous. Let's not do it that way. Let's be the body of Christ, okay? Let, let's be the family of God. If you, you know you're struggling with something, would you just put your hand up? All right, I want you to look around. Keep your hands up. Look around. If there's somebody standing next to you with a hand up, I want you to walk over to them, put your hand on their shoulder, and we're going to pray together as a church. Okay, so keep your hands up so people know who you are. All right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to start us off, and I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to be quiet, and I want to listen to you guys pray for the person you're standing with. One of you, two of you, just jump in. Don't wait. Just jump in and start praying. So, Lord, here we stand. God, with hands reaching out to you, saying, uh, I've trusted in you. I've done my best to believe in you. And yet this hurdle still stands in front of me. God, the last thing I want to be is part of this adulterous church that loves the world more than we love you that loves our sin more than we love you. God, we don't want to be those people. And so we say, God, kill our sin this morning. Put to death those things in us that distract our eyes and and steal our affection away from you. Holy Spirit, come and do your work inside of us. All right, just start praying for each other. We're, We're going to take about two minutes. Just pray for them. God, thank you that you make dead hearts come to life. Thank you that you make wayward hearts return to you. That you don't reject us. That you stand welcoming us with open arms. I want to ask you, I think it would be unfair if we didn't at least ask the question this morning because it is possible to go to church your entire life to believe all of the right things your entire life and yet never put your trust in Jesus as Savior. And I just want to ask if there's anybody this morning, as we sing this song together, if as we sing it, you are convicted, I don't think I've ever really trusted in Christ as Savior. I want you to just come and as we sing, somebody will come and join you and pray with you. But as we respond to God saying, God, I'm so desperate for you. What a better thing if you know that, man, I'm not sure I've ever trusted in him to come stand, kneel, whatever God puts on your heart and say, Jesus, save me. I trust in you with all that I am. So come as we sing it, if that's you. If not, let's just respond to the Lord with trust.